everyone and welcome to this, the third episode of our Fraud Files podcast. Uh, my name is Susanna Cogman. I'm a partner in the Corporate Crime and Investigations team and one of the co-hosts of this podcast series. Uh, today we're going to be talking about jurisdiction and specifically the jurisdictional scope of the failure to prevent offence. Uh, and I'm delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues to assist us in unpacking that concept. So uh, firstly, Brian Spiro, one of my uh, partners in crime uh, in the team. Uh, Brian, do you want to say hello? Thanks, Susanna. Yes. Hello, everyone. Greetings. And uh, secondly, I am joined by Ali Grodsky, who is a senior associate in the corporate crime and investigations team. Hi, everyone. Perfect. So to kick us off, Brian, can you briefly recap us on the essential ingredients of the failure to prevent fraud offence that we're going to be talking about today? Yes. Well, as a brief recap, all organisations and and in particular to note that includes uh, non-UK organisations can potentially commit this offence Um, if they meet the specified criteria under the Act and fail to prevent a relevant UK fraud. Uh, The precise jurisdictional scope of the fraud offence is dependent on that of the relevant underlying fraud, most of which could be extraterritorial, uh, but there has to be some act or omission uh, within the UK. So the scope is potentially very broad, In theory, a non-UK organisation could commit the offence if a non-UK associate commits a fraud, as long as there is a relevant event, which could include an omission or a loss, has taken place in the UK. So the simplest example of that would be all the actual positive acts have been committed overseas, but there has been a UK victim. Okay, and that I think is different from the failure to prevent bribery offence, which I know um, many people listening are probably more familiar with. So can you sort of help us with what that sort of difference is? Yes, the uh, the key difference, Susanna, is that under the Bribery Act, uh, it's 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 a different test. It applies to companies incorporated in the UK, which carry or or those that carry on business or part of their business in the UK. Uh, And once that criteria has been satisfied, then the bribery can occur anywhere in the world. There does not have to be any positive acts or omissions or losses occurring in the UK. It is really where the home of the business or part of the business uh, is in the UK. So that's the, the key difference. Okay, can you perhaps provide some examples to bring that to life a bit for our listeners? Well, yeah, let me let me give a, a, a theoretical um, uh, or hypothetical example. Let's say we have a, a French company that has a UK branch and one of the employees of that French company based in Timbuktu commits a bribery of offence because the French company carries on part of its business in the UK. Despite the fact that bribery has been committed overseas, and despite the fact the bribery was committed by an employee of a French company, uh, nonetheless, the Section 7 offence of failing to prevent the bribe being paid 
could bite in the UK, and indeed in my theoretical example would bite in the UK. There's a separate question, of course, as to whether the UK investigating and prosecuting authorities, the SFO, would think there's sufficient public interest to pursue that. But nonetheless, at least as far as the law is concerned, the SFO, the UK, would have jurisdiction. But in that scenario, if the uh, employee of the French company has committed uh, the fraud entirely in Timbuktu and no acts have been committed in the UK, there is no losses to any UK victims, then the failing to prevent fraud offence uh, would not bite. So the jurisdictional scopes are different, work in a different way, and in many ways the Bribery Act has a wider jurisdiction than the um, failing to prevent offence. I see. So with the Bribery Act, we're focusing very much on effectively the jurisdiction of the relevant commercial organisation. And with failure to prevent fraud, we're looking at the jurisdiction over the predicate offence, in that case, the fraud. That's right. And and of course, having said the Bribery Act in many many ways has a wider jurisdiction, I I say in many ways because not entirely. So uh, as I said at the outset, there's a key difference here that a company with no uh, UK home and no UK business can fall under this new offence, which would not be the case in the Bribery Act. So it's uh, it's quite it's quite complicated. Got you. Okay. So if Our key focus for failure to prevent fraud is on whether the UK, and I'm calling it the UK for convenience as opposed to England and Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland, of course, uh, but whether the UK would have jurisdiction over the fraud offence. And so turning to Ali, perhaps we can sort of help the audience understand a bit more how the scope of those fraud offences work. Uh, Perhaps um, if you can just kick us off by reminding us uh, which offences are um, sort of predicate fraud offences for the purposes of failure to prevent fraud? Yeah, so there are seven fraud offences in total that are specified um, for the purposes of the failure to prevent fraud offence. So you've got the primary fraud act offences, you've got fraud by false representation, failing to disclose information or abusive position. And then you've also got fraudulent trading, false accounting, and obtaining services dishonestly, as well as cheating the public revenue. Okay, and uh, how does the sort of jurisdiction work for um, for those offences? For the vast majority of them, just to add further complexity to this area, which we always like, for the majority of them, the Criminal Justice Act gives them extraterritorial jurisdiction. So the UK court, so to speak, or courts in England and Wales will have jurisdiction if a relevant event in relation to those offences occurs in England and Wales. So a relevant event means any act or omission or other event, proof of which is required for conviction of the offence. So in relation to the Primary Fraud Act offences, for example, the relevant event will include the occurrence of a gain or a loss. Okay, and um, perhaps uh, as uh, I asked Brian to do, you could give us an example or two to try and uh, bring that to life life a little bit more. It just uh, does rather sound as if we've just read a textbook. Um, I know you haven't, (laughs) but um, uh, how does that work in practice? So what you could have is, and, and slightly 
turning back to some of the examples that Brian gave at the start, what you could have is an overseas employee who dishonestly makes a false representation, perhaps say in uh, an investment prospectus or marketing materials accompanying a product. And they do so intending to cause loss and to benefit their employer. And UK investors or customers are impacted and experience a loss. So in that case, the the sort of predicate offence will be um, fraud by false representation. And there, the relevant event is the occurrence of a loss. And that has occurred in the UK because there were UK victims. Got you. And I think you said that kind of relevant offence test is uh, applies to the majority of the fraud offences, which are predicates for failure to prevent fraud, uh, but that fraudulent trading has a slightly different approach. So how does how does that work? Yes. So there is one predicate offence which is under the Companies Act, and that's the offence of fraudulent trading. So that's not within scope of this relevant event test, but the the kind of jurisdictional scope there is a little bit more straightforward because it's an offence that can only be committed in relation to a UK company. Um, There is a a sort of similar offence dealing with similar conduct of fraudulent trading, which can apply to sole traders and other entities that aren't within scope of that particular offence, which which might therefore include an overseas company, and that's under Section 9 of the Fraud Act. So that is separately a predicate offence for the purposes of the failure to prevent fraud offence and is subject to the relevant event test. Okay. So I suppose taking a step back, what are the implications of all of that? So um, how should companies be thinking about uh, jurisdiction in, in the context of kind of preparing for the offence coming in in due course. I will turn back to Brian for that one, please. Yes, well, uh, Ali mentioned this is a complicated area, which I agree with. She then uh, said, said, which we welcome, and, and, and I understand as lawyers we, we like to grapple with these complexities. However, I think it, it doesn't do any favours for, for our clients, for, for companies to have such a complicated uh, jurisdictional uh, backdrop uh, because um, it's quite hard to separate the different strands. I'm going to start, Suzanne, with saying what, what, what I, I, I'm sure good companies do in any event, which is try uh, their utmost to prevent fraud occurring in any part of their organisation or associated parties and the such like. And I'm sure that all uh, 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 major companies uh, and medium-sized companies uh, already have in place uh, robust uh, anti-fraud measures uh, and that uh, should continue. Having said that, they need to be looked at, I think, in the context now of this new law to see whether or not they are adequate to provide the protection that will be needed in the event that any of these offences occur that could give rise to UK jurisdiction, possibly investigation and prosecution. So the starting point, of course, is to look at your existing systems and policies and procedures and training programmes and and see that they are sufficiently robust in order to uh, give the protection that is uh, needed. And uh, any company is going to want to think uh, about its uh, failing to prevent projects, its failing to prevent measures, uh, risks assessments, controls and the such like. 
normally for an international business you want these to be on a group-wide basis and that's a good a good starting point uh, one can uh, see as uh, a strict sort of black letter law one could separate uh, jurisdictions and ask yourself the question as to whether a fraud committed in a particular part of the, the, the globe is going to necessarily impact you in the UK and give rise to a uh, liability in the UK and one again could see at least theoretically an ability to ring fence different jurisdictions and have different uh, policies and procedures uh, to ensure they are compliant in those jurisdictions and not giving rise to liability in the UK. I doubt that any company would think that a good practice is going to create uh, an extra amount of work and it's also, I think, going to possibly give rise to criticism as to why you're having different failing to prevent policies and procedures in different parts of the world. So uh, my view is that one looks at this globally, uh, looks at best practice, looks for the most robust systems that's going to prevent fraud in any event. But that what will flow from that, of course, is the uh, foundations of the ability to properly defend yourself in the event that uh, a fraud is committed somewhere in the world that could give rise to liability because you've you've had the proper reasonable procedures in place. I suppose it it depends a little bit on whether you think your failure to prevent project and controls, etc will actually be effective in preventing fraud because as you say Brian if you think they will be then you would expect you would want to extend them more broadly uh, for for all sorts of reasons kind of commercial reputational criminal etc etc if you think this is a completely pointless exercise which merely gives you a piece of paper that hopefully hopefully um, sets you up to maximise your chance of saying you have reasonable procedures in the event that um, a fraud occurs, then you might scope your project by reference specifically to the offence because you are trying to set yourself up specifically to have a defence to the offence. But um, yeah, it, it, it is a slightly depressing view of the world if yeah. if you think that your, your project will um, only uh, only set you up to do that and will not have actually any any merit in terms of uh, assessing your exposure to fraud or, or, or assisting in mitigating your, your risk in relation to the same. Yeah, and of course, we, we await the guidelines and obviously the guidelines, as, as with the Bribery Act, and I think here even more so, are going to be a, a crucial uh, document uh, for companies to look at and initially assess uh, their existing policies and procedures against those guidelines uh, and see whether there are gaps or weaknesses which need to be remedied. Yeah, and I guess it follows from what we were saying earlier that if you were to take a sort of narrow approach, so let's say you're a, a UK kind of multinational business and you're just trying to map your project by reference to the scope of the offence, then you can't do that on a necessarily entity by entity basis because you'll be needing to look actually at instead UK nexus and what the risk is of committing a a fraud over which there is UK jurisdiction. 
yeah and, and the other the other thing which is going to give rise to the need to 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 look at fresh eyes is going to be the the entity that is not a uk entity doesn't trade in the uk but has uh uk investors or uk customers and therefore potentially is going to be pulled into to, to this law very good uh ali did you have any further thoughts I think Brian's just touched on a really important point. So, you know, for for non-UK companies who might be uh, sort of coming alive to this new offence and thinking about their potential exposure to it, firstly, as we've said, you know, any company can be within scope of the offence if you meet the criteria for being a large organisation under the Act. It's not confined to UK incorporated companies. But a key thing, because of the the sort of connection to the jurisdictional scope of the predicate offences, will be to think about what your UK touch points are. So, as Brian says, you know, do you have UK investors, customers, suppliers, shareholders, creditors? And that will help you understand your exposure specifically to the offence. But as we've just discussed, you know, thinking about it on that kind of granular level might not be particularly clear cut nor helpful when you are no doubt seeking to ensure that on a group wide basis, you do have controls in place to prevent fraud. Super, thank you. And um, I know, Ali, you have very kindly written a short briefing, which will explain all of what we have been uh, discussing today, if anyone wants to uh, look at that in in black and white. Uh, And I think a link to that will be in the show notes, as I understand they're called, um, in due course. So thank you very much, uh, Brian and Ali. I think that's that's it for today. Thank you to our listeners. And we will be back in due course with the next thrilling instalment of the Ford Files podcast. Thanks very much. Thank you.